for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you've enjoyed this sermon from our series entitled The Advent. For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged in, visit the website cbcsavannah.com. saying the words that one day your son would come to his temple. We know that it's prophesied in the Old Testament that he will one day appear, uh, that he will come to rule and reign and set up a kingdom that will, will, will last forever and ever and ever. And we, at this time of year, we celebrate that first coming, that first advent, but ultimately, Lord, we long, like the, the early church, we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, let us be ready. Let us be excited. Let us be joyful. Uh, let us, with our minds girded for action, sober in spirit, fixing our hope completely at the grace that will be brought to us of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I ask that as we kind of just take a few moments to look at your word this morning, uh, just great, great truth, fun. I'm so looking forward to sharing this text with your people. Lord, let us enjoy it. Let us delight. May it be sweet. Like the psalmist says, it is sweet to our taste, to our soul. May it be a delight to us. I ask, please, that your spirit would fall fresh. Just like first service, Lord, you moved. It was just worshipful, I pray. Let your spirit would do the same thing in this group of folks that come to worship the king. That you, by your power, by your might, it's got to be your spirit, Lord. It's the fruit of the spirit that brings joy. It's It's not the fruit of church, the fruit of bill, the fruit of sermon, It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that your spirit would move in your people in a way that we just rejoice uh, in our King. And so please do that for the sake of Christ, Father, and by your spirit. Amen. Thanks. Please have a seat this morning. I ain't going to lie to y'all. This ain't a competition, but first service kicks y'all's tail when it comes to singing. Just saying. I'm just telling you. So, and you guys slept in. So we're just going to have to work on that factor, okay? Just... Saying that to guilt you very deeply before we start preaching this morning. No, we are in our third week of Advent. Uh, And each week we've been looking at a person or a response to the first coming of Christ. And so opening week we looked at Zechariah and we looked at hope. That oh, he had a little hiccup in his faith, but ultimately his son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And it brought hope that God was doing what he said he was going to do. Last week we looked at Mary. And there was a lot of chaos, and there was a lot of just, I mean, there's a lot going on for old girl. But yet in the middle of that, she has peace, right? She is amazed that God has done great things for her, and, and we just talked about that. This week, we're coming to one of my favorite narratives in all, really, the, of, the, of the Christmas narratives. And that's not saying a lot, because there's only like three of them. But this one's my favorite. And it's just a great, familiar text that we're just going to walk through. And we're going to see three different people, three different groups of people. And each one has a different response to the coming of Jesus. And only one of those three is joy. Right? And it's from the least likely of the three. I mean, the least expected, the ones who have the least reason to be joyful, they are the model for us. And so we're just going to walk through the text. I'm going to read it in a second and come back and just kind of highlight some things. 
And we'll talk about these three responses because these three responses are in this room right now. You are one of these three, okay? And we don't want to be the first two. We want to see the joy and we want to see why this group of individuals has such joy. So if you have a Bible, if you don't, you can follow on the screen, but if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 2. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. And let me read. We're just going to go through verses 1 through 12, and we'll come back and look at them, right? Very familiar to us. Let me read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time The star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. With great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, you need to understand just a few things before we jump in. And maybe you've heard this before if you've been in the church for a while, maybe you're new, and so this will be new to you. Each gospel writer, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each writer has a specific audience in mind when they are writing, and they have a specific aspect of Jesus that they're trying to get across, all right? They're all telling the same story from different angles with a different audience and a different purpose. The gospel of Matthew, the one we're in, written by the apostle Matthew, he was a tax collector previously known as Levi. Jesus says, you're going to come after me? He says, okay. And he follows him, and he becomes one of the apostles. His gospel is directed toward the nation of Israel. It is often called the gospel for the Jews. All right? It is a very Jewish flavor. He doesn't explain any of the Jewish cultures like the other gospels because it's assuming they would know them. Right? He uses the title, Son of David, more than all the other gospels combined. Right? He, he, he points to the Old Testament more than any other of the other Gospels. He begins his Gospel with the genealogy. He says, this is the genealogy of the Messiah. And he works his way back from Jesus to the first father of the Jews, Abraham. Why? Because his goal through this Gospel of Matthew is to show the nation of Israel that Jesus of Nazareth was their promised Messiah from the Old Testament. That is his one goal. All right? And so... That's what you have to understand because that helps you understand a little bit the shock value that this narrative would have been to the first century Jewish audience, all right? So because this is what it says, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go back. Now, after Jesus was born, understand this narrative is taking place 
after Bethlehem and the little manger in the inn. Okay, there's no manger now, there's no inn now. This is about a year or two after the events of Jesus' birth. How do we know? Because later Herod's going to try to kill all the two-year-olds and under, because we know where these, these magi come from. It takes them a long time to get there. But understand, this is after all right? Now, I know th- this is a struggle for some of you because you have like a $300 nativity at the house, and you got these wise men with the baby Jesus. And now you're thinking, I'm a heretic. <laughs> you're not a heretic. Kids, but if you want to be really honest, you can go saw them puppies off when you get home and put them in your neighbor's yard, and that will be more biblically accurate, okay? Because <laughs> that's, that's the reality, the Magi are a year and a half off from the, from the birth of Christ. It takes place after when Herod was the king. Now, here, here's another little tricky thing for some of us, because we see Herod all throughout the New Testament. We're like, Herod, this guy's like 79,000 years old. He's everywhere. He shows up everywhere. That's because Herod is not a name. Herod is a title. So there's many Herods. All right, it's kind of like Pharaoh. It's, it's just a title of a guy. This Herod, his name was Herod the Great. That was his nickname, ruled from 37 to 4 BC. Okay, named Herod the Great because he was a builder and he built more than any other guy. In fact, the temple that Jesus would be ministering in, this guy renoed it. He did all the renovations to make it beautiful. You think, oh, he must have been a great dude. Right, Herod the Great. He was not a great dude. He was a very wicked dude. All right. He was evil. In fact, Rome loved him because he was so wicked. It, Caesar said of this guy, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son because he killed so many of his sons because he was scared they were going to try to kill him first. He killed one of his favorite wives, which is just funny to think about your favorite wife as opposed to your least favorite wife. But enough to, He killed a couple of his wives because he thought, oh, they might be trying to get my, my throne. All right? Five days before he is on his deathbed, Five days before he dies, he kills his oldest son because he thinks he he wants to get his throne. He brings all the Jewish leaders from the area in when he's on his deathbed, and he kind of locks them in a warehouse, and he says, after I die, kill every one of them so that there's some serious mourning at my funeral. That's Herod. Bad dude. They didn't actually do that. They actually let him go, but that's what he wanted done. And he was the king, but technically he wasn't a king. Actually, he was just a puppet king. Right? He was a vassal of Rome. They kind of put him there. They liked him because he was loyal and he was harsh. But he wasn't, even, he wasn't even Jewish. He's technically an Edomite. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, all right, the Edomites and the Israelites did not like each other. That's because where they started. You had Abraham, who had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twins. right? And they were fighting inside their mom's stomach. Their names were Jacob and Esau. Jacob ends up becoming the nation Israel. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And they were fighting in the womb, and they were fighting ever since. So now you have an Edomite on the throne in Israel. The Israelites do not like him. There's a lot of tension. And this is the world that God sends his son into. And you need to understand that because I know there's a lot of talk, oh, the government is so bad, and the terrorists, and the taxes, and the blah, 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 blah. You know what? There's struggles. You're right. But no less than when God sent his only son into the world, into a chaotic situation. So we don't have to be afraid. Right? We don't have to be afraid. God knows. He's been there. Right? So, so he's given the background. Herod, after. And then here's what Matthew does. I love it. He's the storyteller. He's the narrator. 
He, he uses this word, it's in most of your translations, some of them unfortunately leave it out. It's behold. Behold, literally see. And what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to draw you into the story and then it's like he puts a spotlight. Boom, look. Here's what I want you to see. What does he want you to see? Wise men, or the Greek word magi, Right? Why does he want to, to, to put the spotlight on the magi? Because the original audience, this, this, this Israel audience, when they would have heard magi, there would have been a collective gasp. <gasps> right? In fact, because half of you are sleeping, we're going to practice, all right? So I'm going to say magi, and you're going to gasp. Ready? Pretend you're first century Israel. Behold, magi. Yes! That's it. That's what they would have done. And here's why. It's because of who the Magi were. All right. We don't know a lot about the Magi. If you read church history, very interesting. There's this guy in the 12th century, this bishop. He went and dug a hole, played old Indiana Jones a little bit, dug a hole. He found three skulls and he said the eyeballs were looking at him still and they were facing Bethlehem. So these must be the three wise men. And he gave them names. That was probably not them. Okay. I'm just telling you. We don't know a lot about these dudes. Here's what we do know. They weren't kings. I know I just ruined your favorite song. We're not singing it this year, so it doesn't matter. We three kings, eh, not it. We three magi, okay. But the problem is we also don't know if there was three. We know there was more than two because it's plural, but we got no clue how many. All right, could have been 10, could have been 20. We don't know. What we do know is they were from the east, probably modern-day Iraq, Persia, the Medo-Persian, Babylonian area empire. And they would have come 1,500 miles across the desert. And they came, here's, here's what's shocking. They came from a, a pagan group of, in essence, astrologers. They studied the stars. They were big into interpreting of dreams. They were into all sorts of religious weird stuff. And for a good Israelite who followed the law, and this was like wickedness, what did they do? They gasp. Ready? Magi. Yes, that's what they do. All right? So understand that's the response when it says, who's coming to see our Messiah? Magi. <gasps> you guys are awesome. Woo! Now we're talking. I feel like I'm a charismatic in here. All right. So what happens next? They come to Jerusalem. Why do they come to Jerusalem? Right? Don't, don't they know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Don't they know? No. They don't. They don't have a Bible. What do they have? They tell us. They come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? Why? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They don't have Bibles. They don't have prophecy. They have a star. And they put two and two together. Oh, star. Huh. King of the Jews must be born. Let's go 1,500 miles. That's in essence what happened. And they go to Jerusalem. Why? If the king of the Jews is born, where's the king of the Jews going to be? In the city of kings, Jerusalem. Right? It, it's, it's for them, that's the natural thing. But here's, I got all sorts of questions. I mean, all sorts. For, biggest question is, how do they know just because a star shows up? <laughs> how do they know? Besides the fact that they're stargazers. You know what the answer is? No clue. Here's our best guess, and it's a pretty good one. 500 years earlier, there was a guy, pretty significant guy. 
He was the head of the, the magi of his day. He was a, oh, there you go, man. You. He was the head of them. And he was a good dude, and he was actually a Jew. And his name was Daniel. And Daniel prophesied about the coming of Messiah and gave a pretty good time frame of it in Daniel chapter 9. And what is very likely is these guys came 500 years later knowing about this guy Daniel, knowing about his prophecies. Something shows up in the sky and they put two and two together and says, this is what our boy said. And they show up in Jerusalem. Right? They show up in Jerusalem. It, it's, but it's really, it dumbfounds us. Right? It dumbfounds us that they would do that. And let me just talk briefly about this star. Okay, two things. Number one, they didn't follow the star across the desert. So if your Christmas cards have that, you're not a pagan. But the star appears and then it goes away. How do we know? Because it shows back up later. Second thing is this. There's a lot of stuff written about this star. And you can read articles on it. People do dissertations on this star. And it's Druce, you can read, it's Jupiter who lined up with Saturn. And blah, 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 there's a comet. And, blah, and then there's a supernova. There's all sorts of people. It was an alien. It was E.T. It was somebody. And there's all sorts of like people trying to explain what the star was. Here's the thing. Number one, we have no clue. Number two, it's probably a miracle. And, and, and if you have a problem with miracles... The God who created the stars can make a star show up. I'm just telling you. That's the least problem miracle in this text. Okay, virgin birth, uh, you know, virgin birth, old lady having a kid, star appearing. Those are really nothing. You want a miracle? How about God becoming man? That's the miracle, y'all. Everything else is like, oh, that's easy. That's gravy. Okay, so if you're like, oh, I can't believe God. That's the easiest of all these things. Whatever it was, it shows up. They head to Jerusalem, it disappears, and they show up. And let me just tell you, it's a mess when they show up. Because they say this. Look what they say. Where is he who has been, underline this in your Bible, born king of the Jews? That is a very unique title. That is a very unique phrase. No one is born the king. Now, you may be the firstborn of the king, and one day you were going to be the king, but no one is born to, to be the king. No one is automatically king. Everybody including Simba, just can't wait to be king. All right? You got to wait to be the king. This boy is already the king. And all Jerusalem is up in arms because they know what he's talking about. And, and history tells us it wasn't just three guys on, the camel, on camels. History tells us that when these guys showed up, they showed up with an entire, like, army of Persian troops. They came riding Persian steeds. They caused a huge stir. Herod probably thought they're here to honor me. And then when they say, where's the new baby? Where's the new king? Herod is like, whoa, there can only be one king. And everyone is, is in, a, in a flurry. And all Jerusalem is troubled. And so what does Herod do? He assembles the chief priests and scribes of the people. Why? Because he knows they're talking Messiah. I mean, look what he asked them. Where was the Christ to be born? Herod knows they are talking Messiah. So he brings in all the pastors and all the Bible scholars and says, tell me where the, where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Tell me where the Christ, that's what Christ means. It just means Messiah. Tell me where the Christ is supposed to be born. And they do. They say, Bethlehem in Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And that's prophet Micah, who wrote 700 years earlier 
this. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why would he say that? Because Bethlehem was a nothing little town, three, four hundred people. That's all. It's a, it's a small little town. He says, you're not the least. Why? For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. This is where Messiah is coming from. They know it. They tell him. And so what does he do? He gets the Magi back. He says, uh, the, wise, the wise men secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. When did the star show up? Okay, okay, good, good. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and that I too may come worship. And he does this in secret because everyone else knows that he's a liar. But they don't, the Magi don't. Right? And so what do they do? Verse nine, after listening, they, they went on their way. And here's what Matthew does. He draws you back into the story, right? You just kind of been listening to the story. And all of a sudden, boom, behold, boom, star appears again. The star, what they had seen when it rose, went before them. Look, if this is just a comet, I've never, I've seen Halley's Comet. It didn't do this. This thing went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, what did they do? They rejoiced exceedingly, with great joy. They're like, there it is. Let's go. We've been on the road for six months. Thousand miles. We're almost there. Let's go. You can, you can sense their excitement. And verse 11, they come to the house. And go into the house. And when you hear house, don't think three bedroom, two and a half bath, 1,900 square feet, picket fence, nice. All right? That's not houses in Bethlehem. Bethlehem houses were probably little one-bedroom or one-room apartments at best. Very poor little town, not big. Right? That's, where, that's what they, you could expect. And if you think that several hundred Persians on their steeds and their robes coming in Jerusalem caused a stir, what do you think happened at 10 o'clock at night? It's probably night because there's a star. When they show up in little Bethlehem, People are probably like, what in the world? And there's a knock at the door. And Joseph looks out the window and is like, Mary, this one's for you. <laughs> right? And they open the door and they see the child. And it's a different word from baby. That's another reason we know this is not just little baby Jesus. This is toddler Jesus. They see the child with Mary, his mother. And, and I, wa I want you to... Put yourself in this place. Here's what happened in a church. 100, 110 years ago, all the liberal theologians from Europe started infiltrating our seminaries, our churches in America, and they started denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And so for the last 100 years, what the church has been doing is, is vehemently defending, rightfully so, the deity of Christ. But in doing so, we have lost a little bit of the humanity. And remember, Jesus has two natures. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. And we always focus on his godness, and we should, but we forget that he was created human. He came as man. And so we, we kind of like romanticize these things, and we picture them coming in, and there's Jesus in like a robe. He looks like a little Jedi, and he's, re he's reciting the Pentateuch, and he's 18 months old. He's like, bless you, Magi. You are welcome here. That's not Jesus at this point. He's 18 months, two years old. What does a two-year-old do? He's with his mama. He's probably a little bit timid because there's these scary dudes in robes in the house. He's probably, he might be hiding behind her, 
her leg just kind of glancing out, grabbing her because this is his mama. See, this is the miracle of the incarnation that God empties himself to that. Right? It's, it's, it, it blows us away. And so these guys come in and they see the 19-month-old king of the Jews. And what do they do? They bow. Literally, it says they fell down, falling down. They worship. And they open their treasures. Right? And these are not your typical, you know, shower gifts. A onesie and a little boppy thingy and a -a Build-A-Bear. Right? They gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Treasures, valuable, probably the most valuable thing that they had. You know, and gold doesn't need an explanation. Frankincense is a perfume that comes from a tree. It's used in the temple for worship. It signifies prayer and deity. Myrrh is the, really the weirdest of it all. It's kind of a sappy substance that's used in embalming people. You can give that to a two-year-old. That's going to be fun. Just give him some syrup and here you go. That's about the, that's a, that'll be a mess. But that's what they give him. Very expensive. Right? Treasures. He said, those are some weird gifts. Why do they do that? Number one, because they're valuable. Number two, they're probably their best thing. But number three, they are significant to the Lord Jesus is. They, they probably don't get this because they have little info and they have a star. But, but we have picked up on this after the fact and seen that each one of these gifts represents an aspect of who Jesus is and what he would do. The gold, he is the king. Frankincense, he is deity. He, he is to be worshipped. Myrrh, his death and burial and his resurrection, why he came. It's a beautiful picture of what the life of Christ would be about. But they're worshipping. And then they have a dream. Right, verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so off they go. Different road home. Escaping Herod. Three different people, three different responses in this room, right? Pretty, a couple of them are pretty obvious. Maybe you got at least two of them. Let's, let's unpack them. Let's talk about the negative ones first. Let's talk about Herod. He's the obvious, right? And a lot could be said about old Herod, right? But what I want you to think about today is this. Herod is a fake worshiper. He fakes worship, doesn't he? Go find the baby Jesus, and when you find... Well, they didn't say Jesus because he didn't know his name. But go find the Messiah, and then tell me, and I will come, and I will worship him. And he is so convincing. How convincing is he? God has to give a dream to the Magi to say, don't go back to him. They were going back. He, he knows how to play the game, doesn't he? He knows how to use the language and the lingo and all the church talk. Yes, let me go worship the king. But the only king that Herod cares about is himself. It's his power. It's his kingdom. And the sad thing is this. Herod has everything you could want in those days. He's got power. He's got money. He's got success. He has accomplishment. He has everything anyone could ever want. And he is miserable. He has no joy. He spends his life trying to keep his kingdom. It's all about him. And, and this is what fake worship looks like. If you are here, and you go, oh, I'm singing a song. But it's all about you. Your marriage is about making you happy. Your life, your plans, your job, your money, your gifts, your fill in the blank. It's all about you. I can tell you, you may get what you want and you may not. But I can t- promise you this, you're going to end up miserable. You're just going to end up miserable. 
Because you're either going to get what you wanted and then just try to keep it and keep it and keep it and realize, oh, it wasn't enough and try to get the next thing. Or you're just going to spend your whole life pouring water into an empty vessel with cracks. Because that's Herod. Right? And, he, and you're going to spend your life like him trying to manipulate and trying to control everything. I control my kids. I control my employees. I control my wife. I control my job. I control my this. And you think you're in control. You're not in control. Herod thinks he's in control. I'm going to control. I'm going to manipulate the magi. Just takes God saying, hey, here's a little dream. I'm going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. He probably kills about between 15 and 20 young boys. That's the estimates. Because if there's 300 people, 400 people in Bethlehem, probably 15, two-year-olds and younger boys. He kills all them because I'm going I'm to take out Messiah because I can do it. What does God do? He sends Joseph and Mary to Egypt. I'm going to keep my kingdom. He dies just a few years later. Miserable. Loving nobody, being loved by nobody. Right? But he plays the game well. Some of you playing the game well? I mean, really? You know all the songs? So much yet? Got my Bible. Look, you could fake me and you can fake everyone in this room, but there's one you cannot fake, and it is God. And look, I'm a fake. First fake in this room, me. Sometimes I'm faking. Sometimes in the week, I'm a fraud. I'm Herod. We got to own it. Stop playing a game. Right? Because here's the reality. If you're like Herod, there's only one God you care about, and it's you. And every single one of you, and me included, we make lousy gods. You ain't a good God. Either am I. So stop worshiping it. Right? That's Herod. He fakes worship. Here's the second people. You maybe not think about them, but this is the religious leaders. They're in the game here too, aren't they? They're part of the story. And these are the ones that dumbfound me because these are the guys that spend their lives studying the Bible. They know all, there's like over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. They know them all, right? All they do all day long is quiet times. I mean, they open, they start their day quiet time, and then they start and do another quiet time, and then they eat, and then they have another quiet time. They got quiet times after quiet times after quiet. That's all these guys do. That's all they do. And there is it finally, after 400 years of God being absolutely silent and saying nothing, they now have a potential Messiah spotting five miles down the road. Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. They have a potential, they've been waiting 2,000 years for their Messiah. And there's a potential spotting. And what do they do? Nothing. They, they have complete apathy. I mean, send somebody. Send the intern. Send the youth guy. Talavo, get out of there. I mean, if I hear that Jesus is at the Savannah Mall, I'm going to be like, hey, one of y'all get down there and just check it out. Yeah, FaceTime me if he's there. I want to see it, right? Send somebody. Do something. What do they do? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because they got to do their religious stuff. They got, they got quiet times to do. They got, they got copying the Bible to do. They got to pray. Right? They got all these religious activities. They're so religious, they don't go worship the king. There's absolute apathy. Right? 
It's absolute apathy. No interest in their Messiah. Why? Because they're all about, they're really all about themselves, just like Herod. These are the same guys 30 years later when Jesus is around. They're like, we got to do something about him because we are losing our influence. We are losing our power with the people. It's all about them. They got God in their, they'll use God when they need him. Here, I got a little quiet time and I got my life. And they put God in their little box and I'm going to use him and bring him out when I need him. But that's all it is to them. Right? God in the box. I got my Sunday morning service. Right? Got to come to church because my wife brings me. Got to sing my little Christmas carol. Give them a little tithe. Maybe even feed some people who are homeless. But it's all in my little box. Really, I care about me. I'm not interested in worshiping Messiah. Right? And, the, and it's worse what's in the church, y'all. Because we all know religious people have no joy. They got no joy. They want to make people think they got joy. They want to make people think they, they're, they're great. But it's, it's all about them. Anybody in here... You got a little bit too much religious stuff going on that you haven't even taken any time to worship Jesus? I'm busy. I got I got a plan for the I got teachers gift to buy and I got the kids and I got to get the garland ready and I got to get the tree ready and I got blah, blah, blah. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Martha's all, oh, I got to cook for Jesus. I got to cook for Jesus. Mary's just sitting there. She chose the better portion. She worshiped at the feet of Jesus. Martha was busy doing religious stuff. How many of us, honestly, and this is why I was joking with you earlier a little bit, came to worship the king? Or did you just come to church? A little apathy in the church, right? Well, what's our model? Clearly the model for us is the magi, right? These are the guys. The magi, they're the model of worship and joy. And they're the ones who have the least reason to be joyful. They've come 1,500 miles. Some of you don't want to drive to Richmond Hill without complaining. I know. I see Josh Hampton out there. Good. You're, oh, I got to go out to the south side. They come at least six months, right, to see the king. And I, and I wonder, just a little bit, I wonder if their expectations were blown just a little bit. I mean, they came expecting, what, a king in Jerusalem, probably with robes and everyone making fanfare. And they get there, and that's not what they get. They got a hole in the wall in Bethlehem. Their expectations probably didn't get them there. But you know what? It doesn't keep them from worship. They fall down and worship. And and let me just say this. Middle Eastern men do not get on their face and worship 18-month-old children. Especially influential, affluent powerful. These are the guys who are bringing kings. They're, they're coronating kings. They're the ones when the government has questions, they're, they're going to these guys. These are powerful dudes and they are on their faces in the dirt worshiping an 18-month-old. It just doesn't happen. But what these guys are is it's our model of joy and worship. This is at its core what worship looks like. In worship... Something is elevated and something is debased. That, that's the, the nature. Something goes up and everything else goes down. It's not like some of you guys are, you know, road racers and marathon runners and that's all good stuff. But you know what's weird about a race is everybody cheers for everybody, right? <laughs> Last guy. I mean, he's 
40 miles behind everyone. Good job. I'm thinking he's last. Not good job. He's at the back. Right? I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm not a participation trophy guy, y'all. I'm like, one winner, gold medal, period. But see, that's the difference between a race, everyone, hey, good job, and true worship. True worship is there can only be one. There's only one. Everybody else is debased. That's the nature of worship. Who's debased here in their worship? They are. Jesus goes up, their ego, their reputation, their robe, everything goes down. And they're on their face, in the dirt, worshiping a two-year-old. It's pretty impressive. Right? And, and let me just highlight this about this. We often talk about how you know, Jesus comes and the poor are often coming to him and the, and the weary. What I love about the, the narratives of Jesus' birth, who are the two groups that show up? Poor shepherds and rich Gentiles. Don't miss that. We as a nation are the richest nation in the world. Everybody here, just by the world standard, is rich. But some of us, God has blessed us even more. And let me just highlight this to you. When you are a person of influence, when you have been blessed by God with material, maybe you have authority, maybe you have more responsibility, maybe you're the colonel, maybe you're the boss, maybe you got employees, there is something very powerful when a man or a woman who has authority and have people under them are willing to put themselves under a Christ and worship. When the people look, this guy has power, authority, he's smart, and he's on his face before Jesus, I'm telling you, y'all, that is a powerful thing for a world that thinks that's where it's at and they want to worship you and this person is worshiping this guy. It is a powerful thing and we need to remember it. People are watching, right? They're watching. These guys are a model for worship. They got clout and they're on their face. These guys are a model for worship because their worship costs. Worship always costs something. It always does. If it doesn't cost you something, it's, it's not worship. What does it cost them? Probably two years of their life away from their family, right? Their treasures clearly cost them something. Their reputation, they're on their face. There's some cost there. And I, and I want you to think about this. Why? I mean, if you think about it, let's just say it takes them nine months to get there. Nine months in the desert, on a horse, camping out. I finally get there. How long am I in the house for? 20 minutes? I mean, really, they didn't stay over for a week. They offer their gifts. They leave. All that for 20 minutes? Are you kidding me? That's a lot. I mean, why would you do that? Unless, unless being with Jesus for just 20 minutes is worth a year and a half across the desert. Unless he's so precious and he's so great that it's worth it, even for just a few minutes. See, what these guys realize, I think, is, is what the later the gospel writers say. They have found the pearl of great price. They have found the treasure in the field that they sell everything with joy and buy the field because it's worth it for them. Right? That's, that's why they're joyful. Something greater than themselves, something outside themselves, not themselves. They found it and they worship. And here's one more thing. And this is, this is a struggle for some of y'all. I get it. Their worship, y'all, is, is emotive. Their joy is emotive, isn't it? When they see the star, it shows back up. What is their response? It's not, 
Hey, did you see that star up there? Pretty bright up there. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's great that that star came back. What do you think we should do? Well, let's follow that star. Okay, let's follow that star. That is not their response. What does it say? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. One translation says they shouted with joy. Look, sometimes there's a, there's a solemnity and there's a quiet. And sometimes there should be a shout. And I know what some of y'all, especially you men, because I watch y'all. I watch you. I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm an introvert. Gotcha. This is not my favorite song. I don't like this song. My voice is really, really not that good. And you know, I'm kind of worried about what these people around me might think of me. Really? Okay, you know what that means? That means you're worshiping you. Because you're not willing to debase yourself so that you can exalt Christ. That's all that means. They rejoiced with great joy. I can tell you this. In heaven, billion years from now, you're not going to be at the gathering of all the saints around the glassy sea looking at Jesus and say, I don't like this one. I think we did this one last millennium. Can I, I'm going to sit this one out. Jesus won't care. You're not going to be doing that. You just, you're not going to care. You're going to have, and I love what Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Joy has always been a response to the people of God. It just always has. And, and here's the question you have to ask when you're about to sing in a few minutes. Is your expression of joy worthy of the king? You answer that. Because you ain't going to stand before the king one day and say, well, for Bill, I got my own issues. I'm going to stand before the king. But you got, you got to ask that question. Is your joy worthy of the king? Are, are you emotive in, in nature, despite the fact that you might be quiet? These guys were. And we'll close with this. It's just, this, this again, these guys blow me away. What do they know, Really? Hardly anything. They have a star and maybe a prophecy. And they come all the way across. Come all the way across. Right? They know so little. They got like this much truth. How much truth do we got? All of the truth. It's like this. Some of you realize you know that this week Star Wars comes out, right? And if you don't know, you're not welcome back next week. Okay? <laughs> but imagine this. You've seen two seconds of the trailer. And the rest of us have seen the entire movie. We've seen it all. That's the difference between us and the Magi. We've seen the entire movie. We get the whole thing. They've seen a two-second portion of the trailer, and they have more joy than most of us. What do they know? Jesus has not yet healed anybody. Jesus has not yet fed anybody. Jesus hasn't even spoken. He hasn't casted out a demon. He hasn't done anything. Nothing. And they're worshiping. What do we have? We've seen the movie. We know who he was. We know that that baby, that Colossians says this about him, that in him and through him and for him are all things created. He's the creator of the universe. We know that that baby, according to Hebrews 1, is the radiance of the glory of God. That, that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That that 
18-month-old upholds the universe with the power of his words. We know that. We know what he did. We know what he said. We know that he died. We know that he came for love. They don't even know that he loves them. Did they know that that baby loves them? We know. For unto us the child was born. Unto us a son is given. We got it all. How much more joy should the people of God have at the revelation of who Jesus is? Right? I, I, I just love the way this narrative, this, this, the book begins, the book ends. Think about this. The book begins with the Messiah being born. Who comes to worship? Pagan Gentiles. How does the book end? Jesus grown before he goes into heaven says, Now, disciples, I want you to go to all the nations and make disciples. It begins with Gentiles worshiping. It ends with Gentiles being made disciples. This is the gospel to the nation of Israel. Because God has always cared about the nations. He's always cared about us. And as we move to worship, just revel in the fact that God loves you. Revel in what he has done. And and ask, am I faking it like Herod? If you are, stop. You ain't fooling nobody. And are you apathetic? Understand, church, please. It is not your knowledge of the Messiah that saves you. It's not knowing where he was born, knowing all the prophecies, doing your quiet time. You can have all the information like these religious leaders and still not know Christ. There is an eternal difference between knowing where the Messiah was born and worshiping him. Ask these guys. Don't be, oh yeah, I know all about them. And miss worship. This is the time for the church to worship the king. To come and worship. And when we do, in just a second here, and I'm going to be quiet and we're going to sing. Just worship in a way that's worthy of the king. Don't worry about everyone else. Don't worry about them. If you sing bad, who cares? So do most of us. That's why we turn it up real loud. We don't want to hear you. But just in your heart of hearts, worship in the way that, that the king is worthy. Delight in him who delighted in us, who, who, who left heaven to become a man, who died to forgive your sins and mine. Let's pray. Let's stand. Let's worship together as a church. Lord Jesus, you are a king. You are a ruler. You are a God. May we be amazed at what you have done. May we delight in what you have done. For someone in this room that's faking right now, they know all the right answers, but they have never put their faith in Christ. They have never trusted in you. Maybe someone's apathetic and they haven't even thought of you this Christmas season. Father, may this be the point in which that, that, is, that is different. That your church worships in spirit and truth. You desire to be worshipped in spirit and truth. You desire our love. You desire our, our joy. You promise that your right hand is, is pleasure forevermore. And so may your church experience just a little bit of that here on earth before we go and be with the King of Kings forever. Just be delight, be delighting in your people now, Lord, as we delight in you. It's in Christ's name I pray.